Hello there, space fans, and welcome to a new edition of the Supercluster Podcast. Robin here, and I've got two good friends with me here today. I've got Courtney Stad and Steve Wolf. Steve is the founder and president of the Beyond Earth Institute, and Courtney is the VP of Ecosystem Engagement for the Beyond Earth Institute. The reason we're gathering here today is to celebrate and to unpack the Beyond Earth Symposium, which happened a couple of weeks ago on October 12th and 13th in Washington, D.C. It was a really enlightening and dare I say, fun event, fun and informative. I was there, Supercluster and Space Agency co-founder Eric Collins was also there. And there was an array of people from the space and defense industry and the government body at the symposium. I thought we'd have Steve and Courtney on the podcast today to talk about the event and what we've learned and what we were taking away from it. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thank you, Robin. Real pleasure to be back. Thanks, Robin. Pleasure. Now... I know how hard you both worked to put together, I'm not going to call it a conference, I'm going to call it a, a symposium. It was a very unique event, very diverse group of folks from across different industries. What was the pressure like to, to put this on and what went into the planning? Well, I'll start there. I'll start and Courtney, you can back me up here, but it's been uh, at the tail end of COVID, we knew that we wanted to have a face-to-face meeting. And I had originally conceived that as maybe we could do a couple of hours at some venue, you know, with maybe 20 or so people in Washington. And Courtney started almost immediately was saying, no, it could be a full day. It could be a multi, you know, we could do, we could have a reception. So it kind of grew from there. I Um, I wish we had listened to you. We would have had less sleepless (laughs) uh, nights, but anyway. But but once we got going, I think in earnest back in uh, March or so, once we sort of committed, we, through Courtney's contacts, we were able to secure the facilities of the University of Arizona. They have a DC center, which had you know, very nice facilities for those people who watched it and it was, was perfect for us. They welcomed us. Our academic sponsor, if you will, from the university was Dr. Vishnu Reddy, who is a planetary scientist uh, with the university, uh, was just hugely supportive of us. And I think once we began to put it together, you know, it's, it was a lot of work. But as Courtney knows, you know, I have my personal background with the with Spacecom Expo and other industry events that I've done uh, throughout my career. I kind of knew how I knew all the, the boxes that needed to be checked in order to make something like this come off. Right. That's not to say that we didn't all put in a lot of work, but it was extraordinary. I will say that, uh, you know, we put together, uh, you know, our A-list of speakers, mostly all the speakers we wanted, we reached out to, they agreed to be there, you know, including two NASA associate administrators, uh, Catholic leaders and Bavia Lal, White House, key staff, SNA. We had this uh, incredible participation uh, from the speakers. All the speakers showed up. None of them canceled. That's (laughs) That's always a good thing. Um, That's always a problem, too, for conferences. Yeah. So so anyway, yeah. But Courtney, let me, I'll stop there. But Courtney, I I, want to say that when Steve and I first talked about organizing this gathering of thought leaders, we did not want it to be a vanilla variety drive-by conference. And the three of us certainly have been to plenty of them. They're always value add. You always learn something. But many times 
I find that the panelists can be similar to in Peanuts, you know, when the parents are speaking and 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 the animators use the sort of discordant saxophone sounds, you know. Right. And and we we really wanted to make this gathering a landmark in the sense of people that were at the front end of either industry or government policy, academia, and have the audience as engaged as as the speakers. And and I give Steve full credit here. I think time limiting the panels, and he could talk a moment to remind the audience of the four themes that we talked about in in our original podcast with you. And the fact that he had the panels meet several times, they generated a paper. So by the time they came on stage, each of the panels were very focused on their respective messages. And I think that really, really facilitated the discussion with the, with, with the audience. And we also wanted to be action focused. So as Steve will talk to you about, hopefully in a few moments, we have a number of recommendations that were flushed out through the panels. I co-authored a paper with one of our advisory group meetings with, with Steve's uh, oversight. And we have very, very specific action items regarding Beyond Earth developments. And that's really the, the main sort of driver behind our, our efforts here. This, this is not a one-off. This has laid the groundwork for uh, additional meetings, additional symposia, additional workshops. Yeah, this, this meeting had actual concrete goals and action items that need to be pursued after the symposium. Um, right. And I think that setting that foundation before this event happened was really smart. And the papers are available on the website to read section by section. They do correlate to a panel that happened on day two. I just want to set the stage here a little bit. There was a welcome reception on the 12th, the evening at the venue. The venue was beautiful. The University of Arizona Center. It's a really nice complex for a a meeting like this. And I thought the rooftop was really neat. You guys had telescope viewing up there and hors d'oeuvres and, and things like that. It was a really nice night. Mother Nature didn't exactly cooperate with... Uh, it's DC. Stargate. It's never going to. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was as good as it was going to be up there um, that, for that for that time of year. Agreed. And uh, I, I brought my uh, partner and she had a great time too. And I, I thought the spread was really great. We're, we're going to talk about others. <laughs> we're going to talk about how nice the, the spread was because I really enjoyed it. And I think everyone had a fun time. I think when you have an event like this, you do want to start it off with a social hour or some kind of reception. And I thought that was really well done. I got to meet some really neat people and some great space fans, as always. Um, I think the number one thing you meet at conferences like this is just bona fide space fans. Really fun interactions that night. I love the view from that facility. You're right in the heart of DC and it's it's really great. So great job landing that facility for this Thank conference. You. Thank you. And as you know, we had Dr. Uh, Naren Shankar Right. Well known as the showrunner for The Expanse. Is he a doc? Is he have a PhD? He does. He has the more I learn about him, the more impressive he becomes. He's an amazing guy and in PhD applied physics. He's worked on everything. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. (laughs) But he went off into the humanities and 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 of course very successful. Hollywood career, CSI to Star Trek Next Gen and and, and the expanse. He's an amazing producer. I've gotten to learn a lot more about him from this conference. And but I, I from, wanted to say, and the reason Steve and I were interested in having Naren Shankar, and you always run the risk because you, 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 you know, we're, we're 
focusing on very practical regulatory policy challenges as we see this very rapidly emerging space ecosystem lay the groundwork for off-Earth observation. There's nothing fantastical about it. I mean, it's happening. Right. What was interesting about Dr. Shankar, the reason we wanted him, was that he's he and his team have had to creatively grapple with the political, social aspects of large space-based communities. Right. And uh, personally, I thought that went well, and I was very honored to be able to co-interview with uh, Kathy Leader's staff person, Ashley uh, Edwards, who is a fervent yeah. fan as well. And Courtney, I, yeah, it was great to have Ashley there. You know, the hats off to you as far as getting Narain Shankar. I think once, <laughs> once Courtney identified Narain and his background and who he was, we had absolutely no connection to him. And he was bound and determined to uh, get him as part of our program. So, you know, so Courtney definitely gets the, you know, gets tenacity. the celebs. Yeah. The and uh, <laughs> and well, I thought I thought the conversation was really fascinating. I think it started with Dr. Shankar talking about the technicality of the technicalities behind the show and the things they want to get right and the story they want to tell and how much work they put into the science and the space flight and the physics. And then that conversation evolved into folks in the room proposing real life stuff to him in a way that was kind of funny because we're, you know, we're going to Hollywood for some answers. And I thought that was a fascinating conversation and a fascinating back and forth between these two parties. And the relationship between Hollywood and spaceflight is very, very tight. Um, and uh, there two things have a very big impact on each other. Yes. Those who know Supercluster was started by A24 Films, a studio and Hollywood and, you know, Tom Cruise is in, always in the news for wanting to go to space and the two bodies are tied together and that opening that night and, and that event with Naren Shankar was a, a stroke of genius because it really set the mood and set the tone. And honestly, when you're talking about top level you know, topics like this. It's good to have a, a doorway in that's more accessible and set the tone for the conversation for it to be light and fun also. Yeah. I, I want to make one quick comment and it's a tribute to Steve. The team, and I call them the Beyond Earth Generation team made up of interns and, and other members of our, our team. And it was a gentleman by the name of Matt Harris, who I was thinking out loud one night about how do I get to this individual? And he, by chance, Typical of our team is that they're relentless, and he happened to have had a contact in Hollywood, and that was very critical to helping get us in contact with with Dr. Shankar. And that's very typical. I think Steve would agree with the people he's recruited. Mm -hmm. By the way, I also want to thank Space Agency Supercluster, Eric Collins, yourself, Rob, oh, in particular, because you. you guys had faith in this idea, this concept from from day one. It's hard to overstate what your support has meant. And sorry, you can't escape us. Uh, in the, in the, <laughs> Honestly, in the you know, when we first spoke with you guys, we thought the idea was refreshing because, I mean, let's face it, there's conferences every two weeks yes. in the space oh, industry. Yeah. And they, I'm sorry to say, and a lot of people are going to be mad at me, but they're all the same. They're all the same people. It's the same schedule. It's, a, it's the same. And I'm sure a lot of people would agree with me. So to be a part of an event where it was based on actionable items, like I said, and based on these set goals, like 
what does our the human future look like in space? You know, and what are the real ways there? What are the practical ways there? Having a tactile conference where the things that we're talking about are real and are nearby, having the White House there, having Space Force, Space Command there, all of that makes for a different experience and a different conversation because you're not allowed to BS there. You know, a lot of these conferences, I'm sorry to say, we go there and we BS each other and we go home and that's it. But to have people there who are like, okay, we, this needs to happen. And sometimes that conversation is going to range from exciting to dry. And that's going to happen. That's part of the conversation. But to have goals and to have a real, you know, light at the end of the tunnel for these conversations is important and why we signed on. And if I can, uh, if I can, you know, uh, Robin, you know, you're really touching on kind of what the that's foundational to the Beyond Earth Institute. So we we were conceived in an idea that we were were filling a, a particular niche within the the space policy community and within the maybe the the broader space advocacy world in general in that you know can we identify you know specific issues and topics on a policy level that can help drive us closer and closer to that future and all the time keeping that future front and center right so we we're not shy that we're we're trying to you know to enable a future that includes communities beyond earth. And and that's what's so wonderful was so wonderful about this conference that uh, you had here these hard-boiled <laughs> Washington pol- and space policy types that were willing to engage in this conversation that uh, about space settlement in a way I, I don't know I don't think that they ever have have ever done before. You know, and so that's what we're injecting into into the community. This was sort of Courtney keeps calling this a landmark event and I have to agree. You know, the actionable items, you know, some of them are going to float, some of them are going to not necessarily go anywhere, but I think that we as we keep sort of pushing against the edge of that policy envelope, you know, that's the place where we want to live and we want to be constantly challenging the industry, challenging the White House and being being a constant, not only just a voice because there are voices out there, but one, a, a respected voice within the community. And that's what, you know, Courtney brings to this, folks like Bob Brumley bring to it, folks on our team, and, and certainly the folks that participated in the programs. Robin, I wonder if I could, I don't mean to displace you, but I wonder if I could ask our, our leader here, Steve, <laughs> if you could remind the audience of basically the four pillars, the themes of the panel, and then how you went about choosing speakers, because I was helping recruit on a case-by-case, but there was clearly a method to your madness in terms of the mix. And I wonder if if you don't Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. How did you go about picking the speakers? And we can bounce off this first panel on the first day. Uh, Policy challenges of commercial space stations. It featured the moderator was Michelle Hanlon. You had Kathy Luters, Erica Wagner, Mike Gold, Eric Stommer, and Mary Dittmar from Axiom. That's a pretty impressive panel. Now, Using that one, how did you know? How did you guys land all of these folks too? Well, you know, it is a process. So we we have a set of focus areas that we look at as an organization. All of these have all of our focus areas have to do with what is the human experience in space like, and and how do we enhance and that that experience and increase the numbers of folks that participate and so forth. You know, front and center right now in that regard. You know, certainly. Certainly is the Artemis. 
program, but let's set that aside. I think in some ways you could say the development of commercial space stations in some ways is even more significant and, and more immediate because NASA has a program called the Commercial LEO Destination Program. And this is a partnership with a series of companies uh, that are going to build commercial space stations. And those space stations will essentially eventually replace the ISS, which is an all-government uh, space station. So especially for the needs of the United States, but certainly for the international partners. I have to go back, though, <laughs> Courtney and I have to go back to a conversation we had with Erica Wagner of Blue Origin back in December. We met with her, and it was more of a general meeting, but she almost immediately uh, honed in on this program, the Commercial Leo Destination Program, and their their effort to put a, a commercial space station, they called it Orbital Reef. And she immediately started talking about the challenges that they were going to have because there is no such thing right now as a commercial space habitat. And so it raises a whole host of uh, regulatory international challenges. How is that going to work? And so we started, that's where we started the conversation with her earlier this year. We actually held a, a, a webinar on this program and these topic areas. So we held a webinar and we also held another session that we sponsored at the International Space Development Conference in May. So uh, what I'm getting at here is these these topics are evolving topics, right? So we, it's not a hit and run for us. Oh, this is an interesting topic. Let's just do this and move on. In many ways, that conversation and the paper that you see here is kind of a, a culmination or certainly a continuation of a conversation around the issues that we have been having for 10 months or so. Property so, rights, intellectual property, uh, liability, oh, fundamental business issues. Reg and, registration. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, how do we, the ISS is governed by uh, intergovernmental agreement. You know, well, what is what does that mean for a commercial partner? And then issues about long-term commitments from the U.S. government to maintain so that they can raise money against NASA commitments so that they can actually build these things in the near term. So there's um, just just a range of issues. And, uh, you know, they dug into a few of the uh, number of the issues, as many as you can in an hour, you know, some of, and then some more of that information is in the paper. A lot of this, you know, so you, you talk about what, what are the, you know, what are the recommendations you're saying, you know, we, they are very interested in gaining government uh, understanding from the U.S. government of how they're going to be regulated and, and overseen and, um, and especially very concerned that, that they have to go to a, what they call an alphabet soup of agencies to get approval for ver for various aspects of their operations from NASA to DOD to the FCC to the FAA. So could we evolve into a, like a one-stop shop for all of their needs? Right. I did see a theme between some of these panels, and I wanted to jump over to the achieving safety and reliability in human spaceflight. I think one theme that I saw as someone who was sitting in the audience is that there's this need to consolidate regulatory activity. There's too many folks, there's too many doors that need to be knocked on to get something done when you're talking about either space station development or human spaceflight, two things that are ultimately tied together. And uh, on the second panel, I saw a lot of the same themes. Well, 
we need one body to approve zero to 100 so we can get approval for this. Is there an international doctrine of human spaceflight that can govern commercial activities? What does human laws and human rights look like on a settlement outside of Earth? These are all interesting and almost, I mean, they are science fiction topics until they're not. What was you guys' takeaway from that discussion, which I thought was pretty eye-opening? That was a great panel. Yeah, I mean, especially you had George Neal was was beating that drum about, you know, let's let's identify a single agency that can be the one-stop shop. Right. Uh, and of course, George Neal was the former head of the Office of Commercial Space Transportation for the FAA. He helped establish many of the, the regulatory rules that are governing commercial space flight, you know, over the last 20 years. Throwing a little bit of a blank, maybe, Courtney, you can help well, me out. I think that for those of us who remember back in the early 80s, when you had 15, 16 agencies that we had to go to to get approvals to, to launch our private rockets, right. any one of which could say no. And that resulted in 1984 in consolidating a single point of contact at the Department of Transportation. There are many of us who wanted the Commerce Department, but President Reagan, in his wisdom, opted for transportation. But actually, there was a lesson learned there. And it's one of my takeaways from that panel, the overall discussion, which was that whichever, first of all, there's a need for a lead agency to deal with the panoply of, of challenges. Today, you've got the FCC, State Department, FAA, Commerce, a whole host of agencies in the mix. One thing we learned from the 80s policy challenges is that you need a core set of, of principles. And, and, and I think that uh, Dr. Neal, among others, spoke to those, that whichever agency is chosen, that there needs to be a light touch, that there not need to be cumbersome standard setting or regular, we don't go overboard because this agent, as quickly as this space ecosystem is emerging, and yes, it's going to hit some inevitable economic headwinds, but as I and others said at the symposium, that genie is out of the bottle. The entrepreneurial genius has been set foot both here and abroad, and there's no turning back, but it's still fragile. And the government, government and governments here and abroad can, if they're not careful, can do harm through overregulation. So threading that needle so that we protect the public, both terrestrially, and then, of course, we've got debris issues in orbit. We've got to be careful about how we, we manage the orbital debris. So safety is always critical, mm -hmm. at the same time creating a frame that facilitates and supports and encourages this emerging commercial industry is core. So whichever agency is designated, there needs to be an agreed-upon core set of principles. That's one of the major takeaways that I, that I, at least I. Yeah, and I, I agree with that and, and, and agree that that was a theme because I came through the first two panels, especially, and don't want to also diminish what also came out of that second panel on achieving safety and reliability, where there was, you know, significant discussion on, you know, what are the, the health and safety issues related to human survival in space that need to be addressed in order for us to feel comfortable or larger and larger numbers of humans to fly in space and survive there. And then also the potential for utilizing analog habitats on Earth to understand what we'll need to 
to know to for for larger and larger communities space to live. So there's there's so much there. This is a, this is a huge topic. I, I think this, the, the regulatory piece of this is is so important. But I think that there's this panel is also about what we call the gaps knowledge gaps in, in what we need to know if we're going to be living and working in space uh, in, in, in greater and greater numbers. Just to pull in that thread a little bit, Robin, on the technical challenges, it's very clear from the researchers that we had from Baylor, among others, that the sample sizes that we are trying to extrapolate the challenges with radiation, cancer issues, visual acuity impacts is, is still quite anecdotal. And you're talking maybe hundreds of unique data sets. And as she, as that particular scientist brought up, it's very hard at this point to draw definitive conclusions and observations about what the real issues are. So it was very clear, another takeaway that we need to really work very closely with the science community and and ensure that, again, our government leaders, our industry folks, are being informed as much by the state of the science as those of us who you know, have all sorts of aspirations. We just need to be very deliberate and careful in working with, with that part of our community. Absolutely. And I, I thought those discussions were very fascinating. And I think talking about human presence in space and getting beyond those technical challenges, the following discussions. After lunch, there was a talk by Johann Dietrich Warner, the president of the German Academy of Engineering Sciences. I thought this discussion was really fascinating and fun. He's a very colorful individual and very bright and had a lot of fascinating things to say. One thing that he brushed up against and the next panel, which was hosted by Laura Forsyth about the cislunar ecosystem uh, with human presence. And these two things are very much tied to each other. Geopolitics. We brushed up against geopolitics. We brushed up against the current invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the situation we find ourselves in aboard the International Space Station and beyond. How do we share the moon with China and Russia when you know we do have an adversarial relationship with both these superpowers right now? When you talk about human presence on the moon, you can't leave out the fact that China will be there as well. And there was certain scenarios. Well, what if China is drilling on our land? Or what if they get to a certain spot before we do? Or what happens if we're at war with one of these countries and we're sharing a side of the moon with them? I thought these were all fascinating topics that you can't ignore when talking about the technical challenges. I think that uh, Dr. Warner's talk was titled An International Moon Village for All. It's a very utopian and Star Trek idea of sharing the moon with other countries and other entities. What did you guys take away from his presentation, uh, which was virtual, I want to point out, but very, very engaging. Did you guys take anything away from that? Well, just a preamble, and Steve, Mm -hmm. please uh, run with it. I do think that we need to take a moment to give a thanks to uh, Dr. Pete Warden Mm -hmm. uh, with the Breakthrough Foundation. Those of you who don't know Pete, his former head of NASA Ames and the former Air Force General, quite a stellar background. He is on our advisory committee and lent his name as honorary chair. And it's through Dr. Warden that we got access to to, uh, this gentleman and the Moon Village. So I thought just take a moment, Steve, and give a call out to, to Pete. But Steve, what's your what, what was your well, uh, yeah no I was away? I was very taken by Jan I you know his humor was spot on I, I 
you know, I appreciate his, you know, his vision. You know, he brought that vision to the ESA, the European Space Agency, when he was the head of that body. And he created the concept of the Moon Village. And he clearly remains an advocate for that. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's heartening about his belief in, in the potential for a true international engagement to develop and explore the moon as it should be. And I think that's essentially our position. We see that by and large competing with China and, and possibly Russia to get to the moon is not necessarily a bad thing, right? right? It could be competition is good as long as, you know, and that, that's the, <laughs> let's face it, that's the American way, right? We, we compete all the time. The issue is, is that can we put up the safeguards such that the potential for a hostile engagement, you know, at the site of the moon or, or elsewhere would, would not be possible. And so if there is a question of use of resources, I mean, obviously the South Pole of the moon with the water right. is certainly one area. How do we, you know, we need to get ahead of that, right? So no matter how much we may disagree with China, it is not a good situation, and I think they probably would agree where it's uh, some attitude of like a winner takes all. Whoever gets there first gets to claim the whole South Pole of the Moon. And even if you do get there, you know we need those parameters, and, and I think that is going to be a very important area of discussion. And I and hopefully China is going to come to the table. Hopefully the U.S. is going to come to the table because we need to resolve that. It's a resource that belongs to the the people of planet Earth. Right. And I think that the you know, international law or the, the Outer Space Treaty, it kind of kind of does get that right. And so we need to be respectful of that. But that's going to be, you know, that certainly is going to be a process. So, you know, I was I was really excited by what, by what he had to say. And that leads me to uh, another presentation by Ken Hodgkins, a former senior State Department official, who's now working with the Hague Institute for Global Justice. Right. And... That his remarks got very little attention, and uh, they're relevant to what Steve was just saying because he was alluding to something called the Washington Compact. Now they they didn't want to make a formal announcement of this document, so they agreed to come and sort of tease out some of the uh, some of the elements, and we're expecting a more formal rollout in the next couple of months. But that compact is really meant to be the first framework in which I think upwards of 30 or 40 plus uh, signatories from different companies, organizations have signed non-government that would begin to outline the sort of policy framework within which the commercial world on an international basis would be, would be operating. It's a living document. And so when you get to some very specific meaty, naughty issues, of which there are many, I mentioned a few property rights, liability, that you would form international groups to help begin to to troubleshoot them. And as we say in one of our papers, when you talk about the human species, wherever we may be, let alone the high frontier, we bring the good, bad, and the ugly. Human nature is not going to suddenly transform itself at the Carmen line. But the extent to which Beyond Earth Institute and our colleagues here and abroad, such as the Hague Institute, can begin to think through uh, the governance issues so we can help mitigate 
some of the tendency to go toward the bad and the ugly, we feel that we're, we're making progress. And I think that's one of the things I liked about the symposium was that it begun, I think, did a pretty good job, Robin, of, of providing a down payment on some of the major, major challenges, problems associated with... The fact that The Hague is involved yeah. in any degree shows yeah. that we're starting to breach that bubble, right. that exactly. space bubble where we're not allowed to talk about certain things, exactly. like the ugliness that we will bring to our settlements Absolutely. in space. And getting ahead of those issues now, today, yeah, you know, talking about what those laws will look like, talking about what human rights will look like on these settlements, and I think is so important and critical Think, think Almost about as it. important as yeah. the engineering itself. It's exactly, like, Robin. You know, and it's. Yeah, I, I, I met with uh, Kenneth uh, the night before. Uh, Ken um, Hodgkins, yeah. Yeah, and really smart dude. And I was really surprised to see The Hague being represented. And yeah. I was actually relieved because yeah. we do want institutions like The Hague and the International Criminal Court yeah. and, you know, UN adjacent organizations to be at the table when we're discussing human rights and human life outside of Earth. I think it's really, really critical. And I wanted to talk, we're almost running out of time here, but I wanted to close in talking about the cislunar ecosystem with human presence. I thought that was a fascinating panel hosted by your own VP of Research and Analytics, uh, Laura Forsek. During this panel, the China question came up and the Russian question came up as well. And I think that one of the heated moments of this panel at least in an exchange between the audience and the panel, is, well, do some people want to live under a corporate you know, structure or something that, and I think the word indentured servitude may have popped up, or do you want to live in a corporate village or do you want individual? I think that exchange was really fascinating to me because there's argument on both sides. The one argument that was made, was, well, some people want that structure. Some people don't. That is a fascinating decision and logic tree that we're going to have to face very shortly. Now, I was sitting next to you guys during this conversation. It, it, it was really, I think Laura said it was going to be controversial, and it was. Yes. And it was smart of her to open up that discussion because that's one that we need to have. And I wanted to see what both of your takes on this that panel was and what you took away from that. You know, there's a lot of debate over what is the scope of this cislunar economy. Right, right. What is it even? Yeah. And I've lived long enough to make no definitive predictions about anything. I mean, I certainly think there's enough really, really bright people have looked at the potential for resource extraction. I'm aware of at least a dozen plus companies that are have real money, real hardware seeking to establish, in, in those cases, robotic presence on right. the moon, laying the groundwork for lunar mining and so forth, which itself presents all sorts of property and adjudication issues. But I think it drove home the fact that, and the reason why Steve and, and the yeah. founders put together the Beyond Earth, this is not something that is 50 years in the horizon. There are no. real- There's an urgency to it. Yeah. Right now, there really yeah. is. And yeah. we had a chart- that was sitting on an easel that I think deserved 
more attention than it got. And and I stared at it for a few minutes. Yeah, (laughs) with uh, and a little frightened that some of those things were creeping up on us. And but for the audience, this this was something that Steve had put together that basically was a snapshot of the ecosystem. There there were a little under four hundred companies. Now, Mm -hmm. number of them are paper companies. Number of them, who knows what their success will be, but. Frankly, every day there seems to be yet a new company a new player. emerging yeah. from um, Habitat to in-space servicing and, and you name it. It goes across the communications. It goes across the board. Yeah. This stuff is happening today. It's real. Yeah, and you're absolutely right, Courtney. And I, I, I wanted to jump real quick back to the White House representative, um, yeah. the assistant director for oh, space yeah. policy, as an Okoro, Dr. Okoro. Yeah. yeah. Their focus, which seems to be the right one, mm-hmm. is to make it possible for or easier to do in space manufacturing, which I think is a foundational approach to human existence in Absolutely. space. Like Absolutely. you build a railroad first and then people will come. You build a settlement first and then people will come. Yeah. In space manufacturing is the key to that. And I think that they came in with a very smart approach and a, a Dr. Carl was really well-spoken and laying that out because it included many of these projects that you are talking about, these paper yeah. companies or these ideas or even you know the people who are far along the way opening up these policies to in space manufacturing is really a foundational aspect to opening up space access that's well said and in one of our papers we compare what's going on with the opening up of the west now that's a bit of a cliche but mm-hmm. we try to walk with some relative depth into the analogs and you've you've made some interesting references the railroad the telegraph right. and so forth and there are analogs to what's emerging as we speak in the space area mm-hmm. uh, and the role of government was fundamental to the opening up of that frontier i'm a commercial guy but i recognize that there's a, a role for partners partner no, and i think government the office, OCP, and, and Dr. Okoro are going about this in a very smart way. And I think yes. it's very much in line with our thinking. Okay, we're they're thinking big about in-space manufacturing, which is, you know, oh. that's still 10 years. I mean, it's still 20 to 30 years, uh, you know, before it reaches any kind of maturity. But the fact that they're trying to wrap their arms around this thing at this stage of the game, you know, really hats off to them. And really, they cannot move, you know, quickly enough. But to make a uh, comparison, they were thinking about commercial crew 10 years before it happened. And that's sort of how you have to do it. You have to start today so that in 10 years from now, we can have the thing. And that's what what I saw with in-space manufacturing, because the White House could have came to the symposium with many different topics and many different points. But to focus on that one, as a foundational, you know, starting point was what shows that they're smart and savvy about yeah. commercial space. Yeah. The yeah. commercial space has now fundamentally flipped the equation, you know, back just a couple of decades ago, it was government, government, government. And today it's government trying to figure out how do we partner with this innovation machine and how do we catch up. And that was one of the main topics of one of our papers. How does the United States government keep from catching up? And for those who are skeptics about where we're going in space, all I have to tell you, we're there. We're, you know, the, the proverbial train has moved 
way off that station. And I think from a taxpayer standpoint, there's huge benefits that they've already accrued and will. And from the standpoint of Western U.S. leadership in space, lots at stake. I'm with Steve. I hope we can do as much of it in, in cooperation as possible. But again, you're talking humans and right. you know nothing is guaranteed. I do want to say one comment. I know you're running a bit over time here that speaking of compacts, the Washington compact that Ken Hutchins put out there drove me back to the one paragraph Mayflower compact, right? The famous compact. And it's an amazing thing because here are people who spent months dealing with disease and challenges and their contract originally was between uh, themselves as a group and Virginia. And of course they shifted to Massachusetts and they decided on the spot to write up this fantastic set of principles that arguably began to lay the groundwork for this fragile Republic that we've inherited a couple of centuries, uh, several centuries since So this Washington Compact, this idea of this framework and the work that we're doing at the Beyond Earth Institute under Steve's leadership, in my mind, is is very comparable uh, to give the the ambition, but I think it's no less ambitious than the Mayflower. Steve? No, indeed. If I could make a closing comment here. Yeah, because it, 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 that's a good point, Courtney, because it does represent, you know, the sort of shift, you know, from an exploration mindset to one that we recognize that exploration like leads to settlement, right? right. So we're, we're entering it, that phase of that mentality. Right. And we are entering that phase of the mentality. It's not, you know, we understanding that we're going places and we're going places to stay for semi-permanent and eventually permanent periods of time. And we need to have that we need to start having that frame, that that frame of reference, frame of mind, and has to be reflected, you know, in policy and and in and in agreements, which can be bilateral. Doesn't necessarily when we say policy, it doesn't necessarily have to be a government or internationally sanctioned policy. It could be a policies that are, are agreements among companies and independent entities. So you know, so we 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 uh, we cast this con- concept of policies very broadly. Yeah, 100%. And I wanted to thank both of you, Courtney and Steve, for joining the podcast again. Our pleasure. And inviting Space Agency to be part of this important symposium. I I know that we'll continue to work together in the future. And I know you guys are probably kicking around some crazy ideas for your next event. And we look forward to hearing about that. Robin, you're stuck with us. I know. I'm happy about it because I'm trying to get off the planet and you guys seem to be the only game in town right now. So I'm uh, happy to uh, ride along. Um, I wanted to say as a putting down my sponsor hat for a moment and just being someone who was at the symposium, I really feel like people are eager to discuss these things. And I've been in the space industry now, not as long as these guys. They're much older than me. Just kidding, guys. <laughs> but um, I've been in the space industry about eight years now, working on the ground at Kennedy and in different places. And I feel like I do have an insight into what's happening. And I feel like there's been a stigma against talking about these things for the last decade. If you are someone that believes in off-world settlement, you were told to shut up a couple of years ago because nobody wants to talk about that because it's work. Nobody wants to talk about these policies. And, you know, some people will say, oh, that's science fiction. I'm sorry, it's not anymore. And the stigma has to go away. And if people are talking about going to Mars or talking about going to the moon, then let them. 
if you don't believe in it, you don't believe in it. That's fine. Build small satellites or do whatever it is. The million things that you want to do in the space industry, you can do. But if there is a community now that is talking about off-world settlement, off-world presence, building the spacecraft to do so, creating legal frameworks and human rights policies to establish that, stay the F out of our way. (laughs) That is coming from me. Not these guys. I'm speaking on my own here, but that's why we signed up to be a part of this event because we're tired of not talking about it. We're tired of not having these conversations. There are smart professionals. There's leaders from across the space and defense and just the governmental side of things who want to have these conversations and move forward on these policies. And we can't We can't let the naysayers get ahead of us anymore. And I hope that if you're listening and you're someone who believes in off-world settlement and pushing the human race outside of Earth and into the solar system, then visit beyondearth.org and read those papers, read those policies. (laughs) You know, if you are a follower of Supercluster and our new project space agency, you'll know that we are tracking every day, everything down to the day um, with our tracker and our astronaut database, because we're excited about the future and the future in human spaceflight. And uh, we appreciate the partnership of Courtney and Steve and the Beyond Earth Institute. It's been an honor. And uh, we will be continuing work together and we will be hearing from these guys again, at least our, on our channels. Hallelujah, Robin. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. It's wonderful. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, guys. And we'll catch up with you guys soon. And we'll have more news on Beyond Earth and future events on our channels in the future. Thank you, guys. Thanks.